0: Your podcast for everything roleplay in the world of Eorzea. I'm your co-host, Remix Sakura. And I'm your other co-host, Emmy. And today, continuing on our coverage of the Holy See of Ishgard, we're going to be discussing the characters. Woohoo! All of the main scenario characters that we've grown to know and love in the course of 2.4 all the way through Heavensward and up to 3.3.
1: Maybe not all of the characters, but the ones who we think are really important and help to reflect what Ishgardian society is like.
0: Yeah, also the ones that we could fit into uh, an approximately 60-minute episode.
1: <laughs> That's what We've been trying to shoot for around 40 minutes, but let's face it, we have too many notes and too many things to say.
0: <laughs> yeah, every single time. Every single time. <laughs> yep. So you're going to have to forgive us in advance for the... Troubles we're guaranteed to get into with regards to pronunciation, because not only do some L names present a challenge, there is actually inconsistency in pronunciations between the English voice acting and the Japanese voice acting, or the English voice acting and the English voice acting.
1: Or the English voice acting, and in one case, how both of us thought it should be said, where our our opinions differed, (laughs) and then we looked it up. We looked up how it was with the English voice acting, and it turned out that it matched neither of our opinions.
0: You're both wrong.
1: (laughs) Or it's wrong. Maybe everybody's wrong. Who knows?
0: Yeah, yeah. Another disclaimer we want everybody to know before we begin, because Patch 3.4 just rolled out about two weeks ago.
1: And we will be discussing spoilers from that patch, so here is your spoiler warning if you do not want to hear anything about... The recent patch content, this is probably not the episode for you.
0: No, it is the episode for you, but go finish the story and then come back. <laughs>
1: yeah, maybe at a later date then.
0: Yeah, <laughs> for sure. All right. So when we think about Ishgard, one of the main characters we're always going to think of is Eimerick slash Emmeric slash Eimerick. That guy? That guy. Yeah, that guy with the blue and the- and the, and the- Hair that's like perfect and wavy. He's super pretty and all the ladies love him. Yeah,
1: (laughs) he does have quite the female following.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so Eimerick, Lord Commander of the Temple Knights. Eventually, he is the one who represents Ishgard in the Eorzean Alliance. Mm -hmm. And he's, after Harchifont, is the second Ishgardian character we meet. That's true. And actually, like
1: Harchifont, Eimerick is also a bastard child of... Essentially a noble, his father being the archbishop
0: yeah, of guy. the Holy See. Yeah. Despite this, Imeric basically grows up as if he were as poor as anybody else. Being a noble bastard didn't seem to have helped him a lot. And he had a very humbling childhood that we don't know a whole not- lot about. Um, we can assume that perhaps he was raised by his mother. In Patch 3.3, he actually gets a surname. Um, his name is Imeric de Burrell. But we don't know if this is his mother's surname or his father's surname or something else entirely. And that's kind of interesting because we know that our other noble bastard friend, Harchivamp, his surname is Greystone. And that doesn't sound like a family name. That sounds like more of a noble bastard placeholder, kind of like the system that they have in A Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones with other noble bastards. You basically get a name that relates to the area in which you were born. So it's kind of interesting that they don't have the same surname or they have essentially like one has a family name and one doesn't. So I'm not actually sure what the deal is with that. It's not like, you know, bastards don't pop up in Ishgard all the time, you know, no matter how they get swept under the rug. So definitely, I would love to know more about his childhood and like, whose name is this? But he, you know, he's aware that the archbishop is his father, but I always found it kind of interesting that, that he would actually refer to to him as such. He would refer to the archbishop as his father when I was like, I don't know, man, he's really more of like a sperm donor. I wouldn't even like, you know, honor the guy with such a name as, as father, but maybe that's just that's how he, how he thought of it.
1: Maybe he wasn't really supportive at all. And unfortunately, with Ishgardian society, and this was mentioned last episode, there tends to be a general culture of being looked down upon just because you are a bastard. And so, it's it's tough. It's a, a bit of a tough life. And, yeah, regardless of how his childhood went, and his relationship with his father, it's kind of neat that he ended up bringing himself up from nothing. From being known as, yes, he is this bastard child, to now being known as, well, maybe he is, but he's also in charge of the Temple Knights.
0: Yeah. So he was able to actually bring himself into the position of Lord Commander just by starting out as a regular soldier. We don't know too much about this time either, but one of the Tales from the Dragon Song War stories tells us a little bit about how he met another Temple Knight friend, who becomes a lifelong friend. So as far as we know, he just grew up as an average soldier and was able to kind of get where he got on merits, on accomplishing great things, on good service. And that that speaks a lot because Ishgard is not really known as a meritocracy.
1: Definitely not. It's all about that family lineage. And if you happen to be born in the wrong place, in the wrong family, you're you're stuck at the bottom. And it's very, very tough, as, as we've seen with people like Emmerich. It's not very common for you to be able to work your way up to the top. But the fact that he did work his way up to the top Might be an inspiration, especially nowadays that Ishgardian society is in the process of being reshaped. Mm Mm-hmm. That now it's possible to make a name for yourself, even if you were born in a low place or a low family.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. If you were poor, if you were born in the broom, I wonder if they'll even change their view on outsiders, on foreigners. But one thing at a time, right?
1: I guess so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So throughout *Heaven's Word*, uh, Square Enix did a really interesting thing in that they gave us a little bit of characterization tidbits for um, Imeric, Lucia, and Estinian that they actually never did for any other characters. So one of the random facts that we learned is that Imeric—he's almost has risen himself to a position of essentially being a noble, and so much so that he would often get. Invited to fancy house parties in Ishgard and made a reputation for himself as a gentleman who's skilled at dancing. <laughs> hey,
1: <laughs> I wonder what kind of dances are popular in Ishgard. Um,
0: waltzes, things like that. Kind of maybe like Baroque era. Mm-hmm. I can see yeah. that. I can see that. Yeah, I think this is actually a really interesting point because. You know, they've really characterized him as this really, like, humble guy. And I must be strange on some level to have to act like a noble. You know, like, put on nice clothes and, like, have these mannerisms and everything. And that probably gets way, way more intensified when we find out that in Patch 3.4, okay, after the Dragon Song War happened... Not only was he elected to the highest, you know, position of government, a uh, speaker of the House of Lords. But it's the House of Lords. Yeah, they gave him like an official lordship. He is like the Count of House Burrell now. And I'm like, wow, that's, yeah, you really made it in life, man.
1: <laughs> you did. But it's the House yeah. of Lords I've always associated with those yeah. four high houses. Yeah. And technically he's not part of that. So it's an interesting exception that they made for him.
0: Yeah, well, I I think, well, the House of Lords is a new thing. um, And there are other noble families. There are other, like, more minor noble houses. But it is a hereditary thing. So I actually thought it was really surprising that it was handed to him, I guess. I get, like, who decides who's a lord and who's not? Because whoever that is, they decided, like, you're now a lord now. It's really interesting because we don't even know, like, whose name, like, Burrell is. And now it's, like, the name of a noble house. That's sort of interesting isn't it somewhat yeah so one of the first things that happens in patch 3.4 is that you go back to Ishgard and the guy at the Fortal Manor is like hey you've gotten an official invitation from Lord Imerick de Burrell to dine at his home and they read off his his list of titles which is like Lord Commander of the Temporal Knights Lord Speaker of the House of Lords and like Viscount of House Burrell it Invites, you know, Natsuki, my boy, in my case, to dine with him at his home, and I'm like, <laughs> "Wow, you're you're like fancy pants now, man!" And then you go to his house, and he he's got like a wardrobe change, so he looks like an Ishgardian noble. I'm like, "This is really different." It
1: is. I'm used to seeing him yeah. in his armor and everything, and then here he is just sitting down with like all this fancy wine, and here's your multiple course meal and everything.
0: Yeah, but from from a characterization perspective, I really wonder how like Emmerich feels about all of this like, you know, nobility and fanciness that's all around him when he's especially like lived the humble life of a soldier for so long. It's so true. Yeah,
1: and I have to say, Emmerich has sort of grown on me over time. He, even though he's he's changed his lifestyle and everything, at first when we first met him, which was back in patch two point four, I sort of saw him as standoffish. In some ways. Um, and yeah. if if you are unfamiliar with Patch 2.4, in Patch 2.4, Emmerich, who... Ishgard was not a part of the Eorzean li- Alliance at that time because they were pretty much solely focused on fighting this dragonsong war that's going on in Ishgard. So in Patch 2.4, Emmerich finally agrees that, okay, we're going to have a meeting with Alphino and the science of the seventh dawn not so much because he was interested in joining the Eorzean alliance but because he wanted to ask a sort of favor yeah <laughs> yeah he's just like hey we have this this dragon who we think is might end up posing a threat to us so if you go babysit micgardzimmer that's the dragon here <laughs> we will help protect your supplies and the supplies for like the crystal braves and everything like that which considering all that's going on considering like dragon versus supplies i really think the Scions are getting the short end of the stick there
0: yeah and i think uh, and i think alphano knew that but he was like i got to be nice with these people like i got to get on their good side like maybe we can exchange fa- favors better down the road but you you could definitely tell like alphano was just not impressed and he's taking this grudgingly
1: yeah and even though emmerich Emmerich, it seemed like, was not too fond of the whole deal that he was proposing. And he wanted to let the scions and warriors of everybody know that he was on their side. He himself wasn't a fan of the policies that Ishgard really had in place, that the archbishop was um, putting into place, where if other people have problems, let them deal with it. It's not our problem Mm -hmm. anymore. And we will focus on our own problems of fighting these dragons, let's just defeat these dragons, and that'll be it. But at that point, Emmerich really didn't have the courage and the the ability, I think, in his mind, to go against what the Archbishop said. Yeah. Especially because if you look at Ishgard and you oppose what the Church says, and therefore what the Archbishop says, that's heresy. That's not going (laughs) to (laughs) fly. So we meet Emmerich a little bit later after that, and things are still kind of tense. But even despite that, Emmerich is still trying to get diplomacy established between Ishgard and the other city-states and outsiders. But there's still that thing in place. There's still that whole ideal that it has nothing to do with us. It's not our problem.
0: Yeah, isolationism. Yeah. So the whole quest... Uh, that centers around the steps of faith where like ice is coming, like the dragons are coming. And like, after all of this exchanges where like Ishkar is kind of taking more than they're giving. And Alphinoe is like trying to be diplomatic, but he, he's keep like, so now do you want to join the Alliance? So now do you want to join the Alliance? Huh, huh? <laughs> uh, and, it, and it's almost like, like the steps of faith is like, it almost like is the last straw because, because, um, You know, they ask the science for help and then the science have to go to the rest of the Alliance who are like really not fans of this, (laughs) you know, who are like, well, you know, we'll send you a few people just to like say we did. And you you basically save the day, you know, in the steps of faith. Warrior of Light always saves the day, though. (laughs) You know, but they kind of have their tail between their legs and it takes a long time, you know, for like all of these favors that you keep. Giving the Ishgard to pay off. So, you know, m- my first impressions of Imeriky has definitely grown on me too. But let's think b- back about how we felt before Heaven's Sword. He's weak. I
1: thought he yeah. was pretty weak, and it's, yeah, maybe like cowardly. Later, yeah, it turns out later, like he will go against what the Archbishop says later on. But when we first meet him, he's just kind of like this messenger boy, in my opinion. Yeah, which is it's really sad because he. He doesn't want to bring that news either.
0: Yeah, though it probably did take a certain amount of bravery to even admit that he didn't agree with the official Guard state policy. True. So it was it was a tough situation, and it you know it took some time to almost like get to know each other and like maybe realize how things really were in Ishgard to maybe like be a little bit more sympathetic and be like, yeah, this isn't a great situation, but we tried our best, and you know, in the end, at the end, things worked out. The Erzien Alliance is. I wouldn't say it's complete yet, because we don't have Alamigo <laughs> yet. Yeah. But it's a, little, it's a little bit more complete. You know, ARZ is more united, which I always, always like to see. But like I was saying last time, I think that they kind of glossed over the whole situation like it was easy to kind of accept Ishgard after all this time, and I don't think it was probably as easy as they said, you know?
1: Especially given everything that, like, that Ishgard had not done. Yeah. In essence, during during all the years that they were not in the alliance.
0: Yeah, so like it's definitely going to take more time. It, it seems like everything's honky-dory now, but like it's really going to take time for things to get settled within Ishgard, within the alliance and everything else. I mean, they've still got to find their way. But it's almost like throughout this entire storyline, Imerik has been like the de facto leader of Ishgard. They've started to think of him as a leader before he was even officially the leader, even before he became like this interim archbishop. You know, it's almost like he people started to like him and respect him more than they did the archbishop, perhaps. Mm-hmm. At least some people. There were certainly people that resisted the new way. But, you know, he got put into this position because he, his country needed him. And, and like we said last time, to, because they began to think of him as a leader. You know, but he's also a person. He's also the human. And I think it's interesting to feel like, what it was feel like to be him and to go through all this and like to be like the living symbol of everything.
1: To take on those roles over time, and how is he going to cope with that? And for that matter, after Ishgard joins the alliance, they don't have the Archbishop to really explain why why the Archbishop did everything that he did. So how is Emmerich going to try and not so much make up for all that Ishgard has done, but how is he going to explain how Ishgard, or why Ishgard, did what they did? What kind of reception might he get now that he is part of the Sayorzin Alliance leaders group?
0: We shall see.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We shall see, for sure.
1: Or maybe we won't. Maybe that's something that's up for the role players to decide.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that, that's a good point. That's a good point. If we don't see, then we'll make it up. <laughs> that's our job. All right. So next on our list, who's that lady who is standing next to Imeric about 80% of the time? It takes us a while for us to know
1: to be honest. Yeah.
0: You know when she first appears she's just taciturn temple knight.
1: And it isn't until like maybe the second time that you meet her that you actually know her name.
0: Yes. And that's Lucia. Lucia.
1: Lucia, Lucia. Lucia according to the according to the English voice acting. This <laughs> was the one that we had trouble with earlier.
0: Yeah. So, we apologize, everybody, for inconsistencies, but uh, we blame Sweeneyx. We do. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She is the second in command of the Temple Knights, a.k.a. the first commander, and she also has a very, very interesting backstory, but instead of being born poor, she was born a very long way from Ishgard.
1: Very much In Garlemald, yes. She was a spy for Garlemald for the longest time. Yeah. Until she came to Ishgard.
0: Yeah, she was apparently assigned to spy in Ishgar to investigate the relics held within the vault, um, which may have held certain technologies that would have been of interest, perhaps elegant relics or things like that. But she decides to change sides after meeting Imric and learning about his story and being inspired by the way that he also brought himself out of nothing, someone who was able to put aside the past and work towards the future. And she took a huge risk in telling him that she was a spy, that she was garlean but that she was willing to change size and she was willing to work for him. Now, imagine what an enormous risk that would have been. If she was wrong about trusting him, she could have easily been killed.
1: She could have been killed by either side.
0: She could have killed by Ishgard, she could have been killed by Garlamald for being a traitor. So I think that says a lot about the strength that that she has and like what she was willing to risk in order to like make a new home. And like Eimerick was essentially her inspiration for that. One of the things that I like most about Lukia is that she's a very well-rounded and relatable character. On the one hand, she's this like extremely competent military commander that has led such campaigns like Rescuing Imeric from the Vault. She ran the Steps of Faith campaign. She defended the city in 3.3 and, like, has this long list of accomplishments. But she has a very human side to her backstory. Is almost like a dark side. And I would love to know more about, like, that time in her life and, like, how exactly everything went down. And then, like I was saying before, they took the time to give us these little characterization tidbits. And you learn that, like, for example, she's a terrible cook. <laughs> That's true. You know?
1: There's one story in... I believe it's just said during a side quest where Lucia just talks about how she tried to make an omelette for a dragonette. And so she tried her best because she very much likes omelettes. Unfortunately, the dragon did not like it. And she said, yeah, I can understand why they probably didn't like it. (laughs) She just can't cook. I love just the levity that it adds to yeah. to the story and to to all these characters, even when the situations are pretty bleak.
0: Yeah. I feel like I live for those little tidbits that make the characters more human. Oh and, and I think that the extra details were part of a live letter announcement. So so she loves omelets. She can't make omelets, but at one point Imeric tried to teach her to make omelets. He tried. And she still can't make omelets. Yeah.
1: He he tried his best, but she's still Isn't going to make omelet, Uh, And it's like,
0: it's almost like, yeah, I can like lead a whole team of soldiers into battle, but I can't make a freaking omelette. What's wrong with me? (laughs) Uh, I love characters, especially female characters, because they have a tendency to be, unfortunately, kind of flat that are like, well rounded. It's like, nobody's perfect. I love to see like badass strong females, but I don't think that they should be flat, you know, no one should just be just a badass, you know, someone, everyone has flaws, like humanities, quirks. And actually, one of the other things that deeply humanizes Lukia is that it has been, like, officially confirmed in a live letter that she has a crush on Imeric, like a serious crush. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because like in the, in that same cutscene where you learn about her past and everything, She tells you about how Imerich was the reason for her changing sides and what a big risk for her it was to do this and how much she must have trusted him to do it. And there's there's this great line. She said that at first she was sent to spy on Imerich and then, quote, I soon became interested in him for other reasons.
1: I'm telling you, it's the ability to make omelets. (laughs) (laughs) He made her an omelet and she just couldn't say no.
0: (laughs) oh yeah headcanon accepted <laughs> <laughs> uh but it's like yeah it's cute as well but i i also think that you know things like having feelings for someone else like is another way to humanize a character it's almost like they don't make her too masculine or too feminine in different ways like she's more of a complete human because she can be a badass and like have a crush on someone she's not like Someone who's like presented as like overly feminine and delicate or anything like that.
1: And at the same time, the way that she goes about like acting on those feelings, it's not as though she's fawning over everything he does and being like, oh, Emmerich, you're so great. She, it, <laughs> yeah, she it's just a quiet she does respect,
0: her job, you know? Yeah.
1: And that's really nice to see. It's not like you're traditionally, it's not your traditional female like damsel in distress kind of thing either, but just kind of alright. So I like this person and, you know, I'll, I'll treat him as a person. I'm not going to go yeah. and overly idealize him or anything like that.
0: Yeah, she she does her duty. She does her job. She knows that Ishgard needs her and needs every other temple knight. And that's the most important thing. But there's also some side quests that give us another just like adorable little detail. Um, so there's some leave quests that if you actually read the leave quest text, which is a thing you should do. There's a gathering order for birch syrup because Lukia has noticed that the only way that Imric will ever indulge himself is by putting this sweet flavored syrup in his tea. So she asks you, the adventurers, to gather some for him so that he will have this little tiny thing that makes him happy. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) You know, and and that she buys for him. And I'm like, that is that is so that is so great on many different levels because it's it. I just love things that humanize characters, that give us these little details of their lives, because they just become so much more relatable. Another really interesting detail about Lukia that you learn when she does her big reveal, she is the sister of Livia, back from 2.0. Oh
1: man, remember her? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, the Garlean Tribunus. And actually, Sid, who's uh, flying the airship at the time, says something like, Oh, when I first saw you, I almost called you Livia. So even though we, d- we don't actually get to see Livia's face, they must have looked really alike. Even though Lukia explains that they didn't actually grow up together because their parents were orphaned, and I guess they were adopted into separate homes. And she says that this set them on different paths because Lukia was able to get out of Garlemald and see different parts of the world. She was able to maybe see the empire is actually not so great. Maybe I'd actually like to live a different life. Which maybe Olivia never got. So, in a way, the story is pretty tragic because, you know, we had to kill Olivia and they never got to see each other, but Lukia does seem to be kind of at peace with it. She knows that Olivia chose her own path and did what she believed in, and it still does seem like a tragic story. So, I know that there's some people who are role playing, I know that are role playing Olivia and Lukia and would actually write some stories about maybe. Things they might have done as children, or things they might have done in an alternate universe where Livia is not killed.
1: That would be interesting to see.
0: Yeah, so that that is nice to read. I enjoyed that.
1: So there's a lot to know about Lucia, I think, but we're going to move on to our next character. So next up is another character that we had some disagreements with pronouncing. <laughs> <laughs> but it is Horchifond.
0: Horchifond. Harchifon. Arch- Harchifon? Arch- yeah, that guy.
1: I don't know. That that guy that guy who we will miss
0: very dearly. Yeah, he's actually the first Ishgardian that you make friends with because he's in 2.0.
1: He is. You meet him in Camp Dragonhead, I believe. Uh huh. And he is in charge of pretty much running operations over there. But he, like Emmerich, um, was also born a bastard into House Fortan. And he was, he also, I imagine, must have struggled with that burden of being a bastard child and trying to work his way up, even given that social disadvantage.
0: Yeah, I mean, at least his father, Edmond, did accept him and help to raise him. That's true. But,
1: but his stepmother he definitely, didn't. His stepmother was yeah. not supportive of him whatsoever. So you can see that... It's sort of a varying thing from from family to family, but it's still looked down upon by some.
0: For sure. Harchavant also has his own tales from the Dragon song story. This takes place when he's, he seems to be about 12 years old and he is unable to attend a fancy banquet at the Fortale Manor because his stepmother won't allow him so he's instead out in the yard practicing his sword and who does because he, he meet? wants to become a knight. He meets Francelle. Highland art. Highland art. Island Ar- we were looking at this yeah. too. There are so many <laughs> pronunciation
1: errors. I hope. I hope we haven't like. I hope you don't forget this. If anything, you should know we can't pronounce us guardian names at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, we do our best, believe me. We try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that's a really heartwarming story. It actually reminded me a lot about the first episode of Game of Thrones where another bastard we all love, Jon Snow, is also out in the yard practicing his sword because he can't attend a banquet with the family because his stepmother hates him. Yeah, no, this
1: is very similar. (laughs) It was
0: oddly similar. It was oddly similar. (laughs) Even Even though I think that Eimerick is more like the Jon Snow of Eorzea because they're both Lord Commander and they both have Wavy, black hair that ruffles in the wind. <laughs> does that
1: mean that that John so is going to end up being like the next king? It's possible
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're we're cross we're crossing fandoms here we are <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I actually really like um the story we get of young Harshiphan. So after he makes friends with Frazel, who almost like relates to him in a way because, you know, Frasell is trueborn, but he's like the fourth son, so very little is expected of him. You know, it's just almost like he's forgotten. It's just like, Oh, you're like just like this extra kid we had. You
1: aren't even like the second son. You aren't even backup son if the first <laughs> one dies. You're like backup, yeah, backup, you- backup, and that's not gonna happen anytime soon.
0: Yeah. So they're able you know, they're actually able able to relate to each other and Harchafant like actually proves himself for the first time at age seventeen when Francelle gets kidnapped by bandits and Harchafant friggin' like kills like four dudes. And that's how he became a knight. Yeah. Pretty crazy. I mean, he's also someone that had to go above and beyond to prove himself, but that also gives you a great resolve.
1: That sounds a lot like my Warrior of Light, to be honest. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like, these bad circumstances can sometimes shape your character, Mm -hmm. you know, when you don't have it easy. As we were saying before, um, his official surname is Harchifon Greystone, which at first everyone thought it was probably like Harchifon Forton, like our role player friend in... (laughs) In the Sultan Sworn. She was like, damn it, I gotta change my name now. Yeah. And we all, when we wonder why, where he, did he get this name? What is the system for getting a surname if you're a noble bastard and you're you're not Trueborn? It's something that hasn't been explained that hopefully will at some point.
1: So part of the reason why I was thinking why he came by Greystone does make another parallel to Game of Thrones here. Where it's based maybe on the region of the birth. Yeah, yeah. Of where he is. Ishgard is gray. It's got a lot of stone. And stony. (laughs) So that could be it. But like we said before, Emmerich doesn't do the same. So I'm wondering, maybe the social position has something to do with the last naming. But the whole Hmm. exception to the rule with Emmerich kind of makes things a bit cloudy. Yeah. Anyway, so back to Horshifan, though. (laughs) Um, We did say he was the first Elizen from Ishgard, first Ishgardian, really, <laughs> that you meet when you travel over to Karthus Central Highlands. And he kind of becomes your inn and your transition into Ishgard, he's really the reason why you get into Ishgard later on, why you're able to take asylum at um, the Fortam Manor. So he really helps us out a whole lot, and not only through that, but just throughout the story. So, for example, he gives you, like, a black chocobo as a symbol of his friendship, affections, what have you. He convinces his father, for example, to send supplies to the Scions when they move into Mordona. He does a lot.
0: Yeah. And the really interesting thing is that he becomes very, very supportive of the Warrior of Light for no other reason that he's, like, really inspired by you. You know, like, he finds something admirable in you. Like, he sees, you know, that that magical quality that made Hydaelyn choose you in the first place. You know, you could maybe say there's some kind of supernatural force at work, even. Maybe. I actually replayed the Curthus bit of 2.0 recently with one of my alts, and I made a point of reading the quest text and PC text, every side text that I could, and... It's noted from the beginning that um Archivant has a fondness for adventurers. Fondness, quote unquote. On whatever level you want to take that. And you, the Warrior of Light, are like the adventurer of adventurers, right? So why wouldn't he think there was something special about you? He's
1: he's a fanboy <laughs> in yeah. some ways.
0: That's that's a good Oh yeah, for sure. But but <laughs> I agree, like it.
1: the there's sort of some ambiguity within like just how he likes Horsafant and and between the Japanese and the English translation, there are a lot of differences that might shape, especially with Horshefant yeah. role players, how yep. somebody views him, how somebody portrays him.
0: And, and so how um someone views the relationship between him and the warrior of light.
1: Yeah. So on Tumblr there is a there is an individual who translates the Japanese text into English. And so I am looking like at Like, directly
0: translates. Yeah,
1: directly translates. And this person's username on there is Halenart. Halenart? However you pronounce it. Island, it's one of Island the Island high Island. Ha- houses. Yeah. It starts with an H. I took a look at this, at some of these translations. And there are some mentions, for example, of him saying, your body is beautiful as always, splendid, when you when he meets you. Um, and this is... In patch 2.4 or for example there's another line in here and this is a very interesting thing so there were some supplies that got lost um when some heretics stole the supplies and the warrior of light asks what sort of supplies were lost and Horchefant says well they were commonplace goods from house for Clothes suited for hot weather in which adventurers might do heavy lifting while still showing off their bulging muscles. (laughs) How regrettable that it was lost.
0: Oh, man.
1: Uh, Commonplace things, mind you, in in Ishgard (laughs) for hot weather. I very much (laughs) believe you, Hochefant. And you don't get that in the English text, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you see it, but you don't get that same direct translation and so yeah. you get more of a sense of this friendship admiration in the English translation whereas with the Japanese it's like yes he still admires you but he might admire you in another way as well.
0: Yeah. So one of the lore team actually commented on this difference once fans had actually noticed that the Japanese dialogue is, you know, you know a little bit more on the on the romantic attraction side. They basically chalked it up to what they believed was a cultural difference. They believed that in Japanese, his dialogue, which is, you know, kind of borders on sexual, would not be seen as like offensive or pervy because of like different contexts. It's hard to know, really, because, you know, I don't know what this cultural context or not being Japanese, but they felt that if they translated this directly into English, people would find it pervy or offensive and they decided to change it. And I just don't know how I feel about that, because everybody found out anyway. You know, it's not like you can hide these things. It's the internet. You know, they felt like that they could hide the fact that Harchifont pervs on you. And like a lot of people decided to go with it. A lot of people are like, hey, I think I ship Harchifont and the Warrior of Light. And of course, everyone's Warrior of Light is different. It's essentially always an original character of your making. So... It is very, very subjective, so you could choose either interpretation that you want. It It's just up to you. Yeah, and but like once everybody found out about this, like that became a pretty popular uh, pairing, I guess you could say. I know that on the fanfic site, AO3, the most popular pairing that's written about, like by far, is Harchifont and the Warrior of Light. Which is kind of funny because it's like everyone, like I said, everyone's Warrior of Light is different. So it's almost like every time someone writes, you know, him with like a different Warrior of Light, it's like a different pairing. Uh, But like, that's the right that we have as fans and role players and people who have imaginations, right? Like, it's all up to us. And I have to say, and
1: this is sort of ordering on opinion, but there's a lot of attention that's focused on Horschevon given the role that he plays in the story. And I think a lot of that was caused by the fact that he did die. And (laughs) people paid attention to him. Initially, when I saw him, I thought, he's a nice character. He's not going to be all that important. But then once he died, things just kind of blew up.
0: Yeah, he grew a lot in popularity after he died. (laughs) And that's not to say that he wasn't deserving of the popularity. Sometimes maybe it takes an event like that to traumatize you to uh, make everybody realize actually like what a good guy he was, what a good friend to the Warrior of Light he's always been. Unfortunately You know, so, it's not yeah. like, uh, yeah, maybe you just reflect on the on the story and everything he'd done and, and see how important it was and, and maybe change people's views. It definitely there was a marked difference in like how many people were, were writing about him, roleplaying him that, that I noticed for sure.
1: He's still an important character to Ishgard though, I think, because... For all the support that he he placed to the Warrior of Light. And not only that, but if we didn't have him, you wouldn't really have Heaven's Word in the first place.
0: Yeah, I agree. Like, he was the essential connection. Maybe he's not a big name. Maybe his name won't exactly go down in history books, like Eimerick will. But... He'll go
1: down in the Warrior of Light's heart. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely.
1: On the opposite side of the spectrum, from this Horchafont who's very much like a jubilant... Overly, not overly optimistic, but openly optimistic character. We have Astinian.
0: Yeah, he's he's not nearly as cheerful as he. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Cheer up. Cheer up. Put on a smile, man. <laughs> I know, I know, we can see you smile under that helmet. Yeah, also for that matter, please take a shower. <laughs> please. <laughs> oh man, oh man. I I can't be the only one that thought to myself after like we kill Nidhog the first time and he gets bathed in dragon blood so much that his armor turns red. Ugh. I was like, dude, did do you going to wash that stuff? Yeah. Like we know that dragon's blood has like mystic powers. <laughs> so I'm like, but but he never took it off and I'm like, no wonder you got possessed later. I think uh, I think maybe all that dragon's blood had a little bit of an effect.
1: <laughs> maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Eysteinian is the Azure Dragoon, alongside possibly you if you do the Dragoon quests. The dragoons are part of the Temple Knights, and he's also a longtime childhood friend of Imerik. He is the star of his own Tales from the Dragon Song War story, where you see how he is as a young soldier, but also as a young child. How did he become the person he is? So Nidhog has been terrorizing Ishgard for, you know, pretty much millennia at this point. Um, but sometime, maybe 20 or so years before the story starts, he goes on one of his rampages and burns to the ground, the village where Estinian and his family live, killing all of his family. Stinian only survives because he was out in the countryside, tending to some livestock. So this is an extremely traumatizing event, even like reading about it in story form. It, it reminded me of the first episode of Attack on Titan. Oh, that's <laughs> It was <rough>. pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely, definitely rough. And it's funny because it's almost like Imerich has a much more positive view. I mean, you know, maybe his life wasn't as tra- traumatizing, but you can see how Imerich takes a, a more positive and optimistic view and Estinian takes more of a pessimistic view and just becomes laser focused on I'm going to kill Nidhogg.
1: Yeah, it's just dragons, dragons dragons gonna kill some dragons
0: that's what rules his life up until the events of of heaven's word yeah that is all that he that he cares about really and
1: now that nidhogg is dead though he he gave up that he he isn't really going to focus so much on fighting dragons or anything and i wonder what he's going to do now nidhogg's dead what what is there left for you to do
0: so the plot of the end of 3.0 to 3.3 actually deals with the fact that after taking a bath in his blood and also essentially losing control to one of the eyes of nidhogg which has given astinian gifts and enhanced his dragoon power throughout his life you know the eye sort of chose him you could say he becomes possessed by nidhogg and a central plot point is always how are we going to save him is is still in there inside the body of a beast inside this you know almost demonic possession and the really interesting thing about this plot is it's extremely metaphorical at the end because Esthenia has essentially leached from Nidhogg's power for so long by possessing the eye and this is especially pronounced at the end of 3.3 when Estenia actually realizes all this but his life of being consumed by revenge it essentially turned him into just as much of a, you know, a metaphorical monster as Nidhogg was. Because Nidhogg was wanted revenge for his sister that was killed. Asinian wanted revenge for his brother and parents that were killed. They weren't really all that different. So I wonder if, you know, the eye and, and soul of Nidhogg actually chose him in the beginning because they were like, here's this guy that's consumed by revenge. Like, he can probably be influenced. You know, he has as much rage in some ways as I do. You know, maybe ha- it hasn't gone on for millennia, but it was like an ideal host. And it's only after, through the efforts of Warrior of Light, Imerich, Alphano, and everyone else that were able to save him, that he actually realizes how much this revenge plot had had run his life. So it's, it's really nice because it, it gives you that, like, metaphorical poetic ending. That he he loses the possession not only of Nidhogg but of this all-consuming revenge plot and rage, and he almost like doesn't know what to do with himself after three point three. He recovers, and that's maybe why he wanders off. And you know, it would have been nice if maybe he stuck around and like helped his friend Amuric build the new Ishgard. But instead, he just kind of pieces out because he just he doesn't know where he even belongs anymore. Yeah,
1: who am I now?
0: <laughs> yeah. So that that's kind of his journey.
1: It would be nice to know more about that journey later on.
0: Yeah. And even in the, in the Tales from the Dragon Song War uh, story that we get, Estinian almost gets himself killed because he can't let well enough alone. <laughs> this dragon comes and basically kills their entire unit, except for the two of them. And instead of returning to the city and, like, regrouping or something, Estinian goes out alone to kill this dragon. <laughs> and he's basically saved because Imric follows him and is like, this guy is going to need my help. Yeah, so he, he's, <laughs> he's got that extremely stubborn side for sure, but Imric still looks out for him. But does Estinian really do the same for Imric? Not so much. Yeah, even the, um, the Dragoon quest line from A Realm Reborn, 30 to 50, kind of shows this unfortunate side of him that sometimes doesn't care about people. So after being orphaned, he was raised by a guy named Alberic, who was a previous Azure Dragoon, you know, brought him up in the ways of the Dragoon, which basically gave him a way to perhaps uh, slay Nidhogg. And he he kind of goes rogue on everybody and is like, well, screw you. It's, you know, the guy who's essentially my dad. It seems like he's turning on everybody, even though he's trying to actually protect Ishgard from this force he feels within the eye of Nidhogg. So he, may, he sort of has noble intentions of protecting Ishgard in those quests, but he also doesn't care about the consequence of, like, you know, making everybody who cares about him, like, feel betrayed. You know, it's, it's very callous. Like, he's very abrasive about it, and it's just like, well, maybe he feels like that's his duty, and nothing else matters except for his duty, but it's like, well, these people care about you. You know, don't always just push them away.
1: I think as the story goes on, he ends up forming bonds with other people, though. Yeah. Like, for example, Alfino, yep. He and Alphino end up developing this sort of brotherly relationship, and Alphino was hellbent on just getting Estinian out of this possession of Nidhogg. He was always like, I know Estinian's in there, and when Estinian is finally freed from this it's shown he does care about alphino quite a lot even if the way that he speaks is a little bit abrasive yes yeah he does care and for that matter you sail um you see um he leaves some flowers in as is law when you sail her her flowers when you sail that and we'll get into you sail like momentarily here but he he's developing he he has developed and become a bit more caring about others and not just set on fighting dragons.
0: Yeah, he's got a soul under there. He does. <laughs> Buried real real deep. You know, he he does I think appreciate how far Elphino has gone to try to save him and how much he like never lost hope. That's got to mean something. And even the fact that he shows respect for Esale after her death by leaving flowers in uh, in Azizla, which is the closest approximation of her gravesite. Especially when Yersail was known as a heretic. Yeah, and was basically his arch enemy <laughs> throughout the whole yeah. time in the churning Miss, right?
1: They became friends.
0: Yeah, early, you know, they, they grew to re- respect each other mm-hmm. in some way. So he has developed a lot by the end of 3.3, but then he pieces out which is a little, you know, disappointing. So, but I guess they, they're they're setting him up to just return at some unknown point. So you never know. He's gonna pop up when you least expect it.
1: Yeah. Unlike Ysail, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Poor Horchefont. Hmm. All right. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Ysail's is our last character. She
1: is. Well, the last one that we wanted to talk about.
0: For yeah. Today. Ysail, also known as Lady Iceheart also known as Shiva, gets uh, introduced as the antagonist in patch 2.4, but she also gets developed as a character to the point where you know that she's not just a flat, cold-hearted villain, that maybe she actually believes that her cause is righteous and that she's doing the right thing. And in Heaven's Word, she actually becomes an ally and at the end of everything becomes our friend and even nobly sacrifices herself for our cause so i feel like she's a very tragic character overall including her backstory so i mean it is it is sad that she didn't make it but i did feel like the manner of her death did make sense and that it had the proper emotional impact like if we have to lose a character like that's how it should be done it felt like it was necessary it had to be done it wasn't cheap and it had the emotional impact that i believe the writers intended So, why is she so tragic? Her backstory is that during the Calamity, she was a young child who was orphaned. I believe she was from the town of Falcon's Nest. And she wandered the land, not having anywhere else to go, into Trevannia. And what she didn't know at the time is that she was blessed by the Echo. So, when she happens to run into Kreisvelger, Her echo powers actually reveal to her basically the truth of the origin of the Dragonsong War and about the story of Hrace and Shiva. This totally changes her perspective. She actually realizes that basically all of Ishgard is built on a lie. So she brings together a force of what are called heretics to try to fight back to maybe reveal the truth. So it's definitely got good intentions. It's just
1: that she isn't seen very much as as somebody who's doing the right thing by everybody else. And at the same time, she's misled to summon this primal who really isn't actually Shiva, but more her own imagining of how Shiva would be. So the Warrior of Light then has to go and stop her when she does summon Shiva. And what's really neat is that She does have those good intentions. And there's something that I learned um, studying a little bit about acting is that everybody thinks that they're doing the right thing. And it's all a matter of perspective. Yep. And so Square Enix, like you said, they did have the ability to really build on this and to show that, like Emmerich, she's trying to do the same thing to find out the truth about everything that's going on in Ishgard. And to end the Dragonsong War.
0: Yeah. It's definitely true that, like, everyone believes that they're the hero in their own story. And that's why I especially like to see villains that have depth, that are not just pure evil. Like, they're also humans that are maybe just misguided. And, I mean, at the end of the day, you could really say that the Dragonsong War was built on a gross misunderstanding. Because... Nidhogg is always saying things, even, you know, as Iceheart, Esel says things like, the children must pay for the sins of the father. So it's like they're making Ishgard pay for things that their ancestors did, but like nobody alive even knew about what the founders of Ishgard did, you know? So it's it's really misguided and unfair and ultimately really bad for everybody to think that the Children of Ishgard must pay in perpetuity, and maybe the dragons don't really get this because they live for so long. It's almost like the people that were alive then are the same that are alive now, but, you know.
1: You can see that in the Moogle quests. (laughs)
0: There's one
1: dragon (laughs) there who's like, oh yeah, I can do this, just give me a hundred (laughs) years. I can do what you need, as long as you're willing to wait that long. That shouldn't be a problem, right?
0: (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. So... Other than, like, the original sin, you could say, like, it all just ends up being some giant misunderstanding. And eventually, by actually learning to understand both sides of the story, we actually get to the real truth. And eventually we learn that we can all be friends. And maybe Isel is almost like a a symbol of that. You know, she was the symbol of Dravania, and she eventually came to, to help Ishgard in the end. You know, because more than anything, everybody wanted the war to end. That's the one thing that that both sides always had in common. Yeah. So she made a lot of, a lot of sacrifices in many ways to make that happen. So even though she's gone there, I think we'll always remember her in a, in a positive way and a and a well developed character.
1: For sure. Well, that's all the characters that we wanted to discuss for today.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, so we we cut we cut a few out, like the Heavens Ward and the Scholasticat, but. If you would ever like us to cover things that uh, we perhaps didn't have time for, all you gotta do is become a patron.
1: Yeah, you can donate to us on Patreon.com. And I believe it's for $5, right? $5 a month? Yes. Gives you access to all of the bonus content. And we have a lot that we want to discuss. We just need somebody to discuss it with.
0: Yeah. Yep. If you donate at $5 a month, you get access to all of the bonus content in text form. If you donate $10 a month, we will actually record bonus episodes for you where we can talk about things like side quests or uh, we got one where I re- actually, I'd really like to discuss El Amigo because we've done almost all the other city states but there's not enough for a full El Amigo episode quite yet. So, you know, with 3.4 coming up something we're all thinking about. That might be neat Yeah, there's lots about. of possibility. There's lots of possibilities. So If you like what we're saying and you really just can't get enough, consider making that donation.
1: Yep. But we also are going to give a little bonus thing not so much related to roleplay, or at least the (laughs) city-states that we were talking about. But every episode, as we usually do, we do enjoy giving little stories about things that have been happening in-game, in-character or out-of-character, just because we like playing Final Fantasy XIV oh so very much. We did. <laughs> so, I can't confirm. So recently, we had Patch 3.4 come out. And so we just wanted to talk about what we did with all of that new content that
0: came out. Right? Well, the first thing that I always do is the main scenario. Always. Because I really want to know what happens next. <laughs> what do you think? As far as the Scions go, even though some people might have disagreed before, my favorite was always Ariange. Always. And he got a huge role in this patch that was huge on the character development. So I was very happy. And it was a real emotional roller coaster because when I realized that he was like the masked man that was helping the yeah. warriors of darkness, I was so heartbroken. I was <laughs> And amy knows because I messaged her. I
1: was very, very confused. <laughs> and I did think that he had betrayed the rest of the Scions. And then to know that he didn't, even though he was... He had sacrificed a lot and like was walking in darkness for a while. It was it was really interesting to see it.
0: Yeah, I mean, ever since I guess the end of Heaven's Word, you knew that something was up. You know, like he's talking to Olidibus, and then the next patch it's like he's talking to Olidipus in the great Google Library. Like you start to think, like, is he turning sides? Like it was very well foreshadowed. To the point where I was like uh, I was actually messaging Emily I was like I'm my heart is breaking <laughs> and then it was like oh uh, and then like you know an hour later it's like oh never mind he's, he's still a good guy yeah
1: and then Alice Alice <laughs> yeah, developed right? a whole lot during that yep i I don't want to give a whole lot about it but I'm currently in a role play with um with an Alice role player and we're just having a lot of fun with it with with the direction that they've taken Alize and how how her combat role might change slightly in the future.
0: Yeah, she definitely got a lot of development. She struggled in the past with conflicting with her brother, living in the legacy of her grandfather, in wanting to do a lot for Eorizia, but looking for for a source of inspiration. So this was really, really nice to see.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, that she's strong in, in emotional fortitude and... Strong, actually, in combat skills, you know. Actually, the fact that she pulled a sword out of the out of the book Diana, has got I was everyone trying debating. To not
1: spoil that.
0: <laughs> oh, well, we gave a warning at the beginning of the episode. That's true, right? we did. Yeah, <laughs> has everyone debating like if whatever job, quote unquote, that she is is going to be uh introduced in four point oh? Is it going to be like a new job, like red mage or uh, rune fencer or something like that, like from a previous game? My
1: character. In character is now convinced that she's a tank. (laughs) Scoot? Yeah, Scoot now thinks that she's a tank and is really excited about that. (laughs) I don't think she's actually a tank.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but Scoot wants to tank things with her. Yeah,
1: Scoot really wants to to tank things. So, (laughs) main story happened. And that honestly was not the first thing that I did, though. When I logged on, first thing I did was get an apartment. Oh, yeah. Those, Those came out and... It seems like even the ones on the bigger servers, at least on Gilgamesh, they have not filled up until recently, and I'm talking maybe like a couple of days ago that things on like the Goblet started to fill up, but apartments are kind of neat because we were talking about this earlier, it might be a good place for people to roleplay, for people to use that space, and the lobbies for that matter even though I don't see a whole lot of people in the lobbies right now. But it's a cool place where people can roleplay.
0: Yeah, I've seen at least people in my building have left their rooms open. And if you look at the little description, they actually will put something like use this room for roleplay. Or it's clear that the rooms are like thematic. Like in my building, there was a room that was like a secret storage facility for a secret organization. There was one that was like a bar and fight club. There were a couple of other almost like scenario type rooms that i had a strong feeling were done were created by role players like for role play purposes like to do to doing character events there i think that the fact that apartments are communal spaces where a lot of people are in a tight area just like in real life is able to bring together diverse groups of people because in no other housing unit do you really come into close contact with people in your FC house, it's your FC mates, and you know them already. It's your personal house, unless you really like want to talk to your neighbors. It's not a good way to meet people, but in apartments, it is. Like I've even seen people congregating outside my building that Emmy bought for me, by the way, in the Because I, because <laughs> I, I was I was away when it actually launched.
1: Yeah, so I went and but bought th- it. But I think
0: I think there's there's some strong possibilities. I think you know for it to become a part of the roleplay community.
1: Yeah, I think it's got a lot of good potential, and on smaller population servers, it's really nice because a lot of buildings haven't filled up. I got a room one in the Goblet on Lich, and when last I checked, that building only had three tenants, including myself. Wow. <laughs> so there's a lot of space, so if you are considering maybe building a roleplay space, apartments might be a good way to go if there are some available on your server
0: yeah it's a good idea because it's like you've got your FC room that's kind of like your your bedroom like so far both of my homes that I have my FC room and my personal house are, are decorated like homes but people can get really really creative with these housing pieces and make like thematic places like you know whether it's a restaurant or bar or anything else you can really dream up
1: So we were planning on talking about roleplay status but we realized we want to get a good idea of what changes the roleplay status has made within different servers up to this point. And while I've had a couple of experiences with people asking me about roleplay and getting interested in their roleplay scene, I think we don't really have much of a full understanding of the changes that adding this roleplay feature or this roleplay status feature, has made on this gaming community just yet. So we are planning on talking about the roleplay status a little bit later, but I think at this point we're still evaluating just what it is.
0: Yeah, for sure. We definitely have not forgotten about it, but I don't think I've spent enough time with it to really know what the verdict is. I agree. That's kind of my feeling.
1: Yeah, I agree. We're trying to get some viewpoints from people. If you... If you would like to talk about your experiences after using the roleplay status, by all means, you are welcome to send us an email.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) At the end, we'll do our normal reading off of all our social media. Really, it's just MuseCastXIV everywhere. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah, and and MuseCastXIV at gmail.com if you do want to email us.
1: While we're on the subject of getting in touch with us, We got some really cool news from the community this week. Um, We learned about a fan-made magazine that's called the Moogle Post. And every month they are releasing a new issue in PDF format. It's got 40, 50 or so pages. And it's got all sorts of articles on a bunch of different topics relating to Final Fantasy XIV in a nicely designed and well laid out format in my opinion. So it's really neat to see people publishing written content in a format that's more of a visual experience than your typical blog. And we also learned that starting from the October edition, the Moogle post is including a column on role-playing. So we recommend giving them a read. If you want to go check it out, you can find them over at www.mooglemedia.com.
0: So something awesome that happened in the past week, we got our first user submitted question on our Tumblr blog. And this is from everyone's best friend, Anonymous. Yay! We
1: love you, Anonymous.
0: (laughs) They asked, Why do I see so little about Balmung roleplay? Referring to on our website. It's great to see all these things on other servers. It really is. But it's a shame I see nothing blogged on the events going on on Balmung. So I want to share with everybody the response that we wrote. Because it may be something that other listeners are wondering. Because... We all know that Balmung is the hub of roleplay in FF14, so why wouldn't we talk about things specific to that server more often? So here's what we responded Thanks for taking the time to write in, first off. You're absolutely right. We have chosen not to advertise anything specifically pertaining to the Balmung server. There are two reasons for this. One is that Balmung is simply not where we, your hosts, play or RP most of the time. We have our mains on Gilgamesh and Balmong Alts for occasional fun. The second reason is if we, MuseCast, are to be a force for community building within the FF14 RP community, it's important that we actively work to support the smaller RP communities. Put it this way: the Balmong RP scene is large and thriving. And doesn't need our help to grow. Our peers there already have a huge and supportive community around them, a billion options on how to RP, and a gazillion options for finding out about events. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) (laughs) For everyone else, it's not so easy. Even the RP scene on Gilgamesh, the second highest population server, is a fraction of a fraction of what it is on Balmung. This is verified by my personal experience. Think of how much exponentially harder it is for servers far smaller than that. It's those small and often overlooked RP communities where a helping hand is most needed. Hyperion, Lich, Admantoys, These are some of the servers we've featured or plan to feature. We also want to discourage the unfortunate line of thinking that in-game RP can only be done if you're on Balmung. Such a high-pop server has no need of more people flooding to it just because they want to get into RP. Not only that, but many players simply don't want to live on such a high-pop server and like the smaller server feel. What we would much rather see is less focus on Balmong overall and more RPers starting and growing communities where they already are. This not only creates greater diversity in the FF14 RP scene, but makes RP feel accessible to anyone and everyone. So that's our official position.
1: Yeah, we don't really feel that Baomung is by any means a bad server. We just think that it's getting a whole lot of attention as it is. If you go on Tumblr, for example, you'll see lots and lots of posts about Baomung events whereas you don't see those events quite as widely circulated if they go on on other servers. And roleplay is something that is possible pretty much on whatever server you happen to be on. And so, while some people may want to transfer to Baomeng for the community that is established there, that is wonderful. If you would like to transfer to Baomeng, by all means, please do. But we would like to give some of the smaller servers a bit of a chance to Let other people know, hey, we're here.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, I agree. And really, all you need to do RP in-game is you, a friend, and imagination. It can start with just that. So at the same time, we want to hear about the different experiences people have, whether you're on a small server, whether you're on a big server. Maybe what's the difference? We're always open to hearing from you, our listeners. And again, you can contact us on our website, MuseCastXIV.com, submit a question there, or send us a message on our Twitter, MuseCastXIV, or our Facebook.
1: newscastxiv. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And you can listen to us while we're on the subject on iTunes yeah. or Stitcher or Google Play. And if you like what you hear, you can support us on both Patreon Or on PayPal if you don't want to give to us every month. It's just kind of like buying us a drink. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, we we are very, very thankful of of your support. And even if you're just tuning in and listening, we are glad you're here. Yes. We are very glad that you are here.
0: Yes. Thank you for everybody. And also, I have to say, if you want to buy us a real drink and you're at FanFest, feel free to do that. (laughs) Yeah, we'll be at FanFest.
1: Um, actually, our next <laughs> yeah. episode, which you'll hear in the outro later on, but we are planning on having a very special episode of Newscast 14 where we will be interviewing some people. Mm-hmm. And so we'll be there.
0: Yes, we will be interviewing not only players just like you who we happen to encounter, look for the people in the Roleplay as My True Endgame t-shirts <laughs> <laughs> and bags, but we've also got some big names in the community that have generally offered to sit down with us and talk with us. And we can't say who just yet, but you definitely know who they are. I really, I so want to tell
1: them. (laughs) I
0: really do. (laughs) Soon. Soon soon. enough. (laughs) Yeah, we will post on Twitter as soon as they're confirmed. So shortly after FanFest, you will know. We're super duper hyped about that. And actually after we finish this recording, I'm gonna start to pack up my microphone. Oh, I've already packed up some of mine. And my <laughs> and my preamp and everything. It's going in the suitcase. Yep,
1: I got my preamp all ready to go. I've got my extra mic, which we'll be using for some of these interviews. And that yep. will set up all ready to go. It's it's really, really exciting.
0: For sure. Thank you again, listeners, for joining us. We hope to see you at Fanfest. If not, we will see you on our next episode. Take care and happy adventuring. See you next time.
1: Thanks for listening to MuseCast 14. Tune in next time for a special episode at the Final Fantasy 14 Fan Festival. Happy adventuring and may you ever walk in the light of the crystal.